Today's episode of Market Talk is brought to you in part by Growmark FS. For over 95 years, we've led the game. Power, we restored it. Protection, we reinvented it. Record yields, we redefined it. If there's one thing we know at FS, it's that just because something hasn't been done doesn't mean it can't be done. We're never satisfied unless we take your farming operation to the next level. Run your equipment at peak efficiency and bust the bins this season. Visit fssystem.com. The views and opinions of this program are those of the host, guests, and callers. There is substantial risk of loss in trading futures and options, which you should carefully consider prior to trading. Bringing you the ag information you need, this is Market Talk, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into Market Talk here today. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. And coming up on today's program, as we are racing towards the end of the year, we will hear about farmland values and more with Randy Dickhoot from Agricultural Economic Insights. I'll also share a conversation I had last week on AOA with the Executive Director of Operation Lifesaver, Rachel Molle, coming up in segment four today. First up, though, let's kick things off, continue our interview series with our economist friends as we look at the grain and livestock markets as a whole and the ag economy as a whole. Joining us now for a conversation, Steve Nicholson with Bank is with us here on Market Talk today. Steve, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you and yours. Thanks so much for making the time to join us on the program today. It's great to be here. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you and your family. And so, yeah, great to have a conversation as always. Well, let's dive in. And, uh, you know, speaking of Christmas time, holiday mode in these markets and this trade overall, it's uh, that always happens. I feel like, Steve, we get that thin type of low volume trade here as we work through the uh, final two weeks of the year and get into 2024. And largely it feels like these markets kind of entered that holiday mode to some degree you know, by the 15th of December, things outside of a, a few moves here and there have been pretty quiet here, haven't they, Steve? Yeah, they have. And it seems like, you know, you're right. Last last Friday on the 15th is like people said, I'm done for the year. They got evened up and they went home. And I think that's the, you know, one of the challenges in a, in a market like this, where it's very thin, like you say, people get put too much emphasis on oh my gosh, it moved, you know, corn moved a dime or 15 cents. Well, the reality is that's probably under pretty light trading or pretty light volume. And so don't read too much into the next two weeks of market action. But having said that, you know, it does provide some opportunities that, you know, I I don't care if you're on the buy side or the sell side, you know, it may provide an opportunity for you that you may want to be paying attention to and not lose sight of. Don't just go home um, and say, oh, nothing's going to happen. Because I can tell you over the years I've been doing this, is it, particularly on the buy side when I was on the commodity procurement side, there were opportunities here that I took advantage of. And by the time I got back to the office in January, you know, those opportunities were gone. So same thing on the sales side. Yeah, that's a great point you bring up that uh, not to get complacent here during the holiday yeah. season, be on our toes because things can happen in these markets. And, and to your point, you know, we get that thin trade, but that volatility can increase. And, you know, next thing you know, you can look at one of these markets and say, hey, you know, corn's hitting a, an overhead target that I set, for instance, not saying that's happening, but right. it just in general, it's it's about being on your toes and, and paying attention. Right, Steve? Yeah. I mean, we're recording this on the 21st of December, just 
And then you look at the board today and corn's up a little bit, but you look at the bean market and we're down almost a dime and you see meal down a lot and you see oil down a lot. So things can happen that you just need to be paying attention to. Definitely. I, I know some of the things we're watching in the markets here as well over the next couple of weeks, even with a lot of folks out of the market or on the sidelines, South America weather, of course, that's a, the big talking point here. We're waiting to see, I think, yep. if these rains verify in Brazil. What's your thoughts, your perspective on the South American weather situation right yeah. now and the market impacts? Well, I think it's a great question. And I think to your point, you know, you are in a time period now where you start to think about, you know, if they don't get the rains, this is, you know, this is kind of a crucial time for the crop. And so, you know, people worry about the rains in November or lack of rains in November and even first half of December. And it's like, okay, not worry, but now, now you're in a situation where, you know, these rains are important. So that's the first thing I think I always try to remind people. But I do think the, the crop got off to, depending on where you are in Brazil, got off to a, a good start or did not get off to a very good start. And you've got a lot of beans that were replanted. You had a lot of beans that were late planted. And, and so you have a lot of variation in this crop where in the last year, you know, a year ago, everything was absolutely perfect. You know, our analyst in Sao Paulo is already, and I, and I will use her comment to us. She said she's at 158 million metric tons, just to give you a perspective where she is or under 160. And she said, she said to me, she said, you know, last year when I was predicting a record crop, I felt pretty confident in that number. She said this year, I don't feel very confident in that number, which tells me that there's a lot more variation around that number. And I, and I suspect more to the downside than the upside because of how this crop has been planted and developed. So I think that this, the market's going to react to that over the next 30 days, um, both upside and downside, because it's sort of the, you know, the time of drama or the soap opera or the silly season, however you want to describe it for Brazil. And then just kind of one more point is that the fact that that soybean crop got in late in some places, that just backs the safrina crop up that much more. And of course, you, you back that safrina crop up, it gets into time periods that are not favorable for filling on corn. And so you do have the, the risk of seeing a little bit of, of a smaller corn crop in Brazil, the safrina crop, you know, as we get into 2024. On that note, with the Safrina yeah. crop, if it does get delayed and backed up, yeah. I, I, I'll play a little devil's advocate here with sure. you. We have a ton of corn in the world. Right. So if they do have corn production challenges in Brazil with that Safrina crop, how much market impact could it really have on, on the U.S. corn market, do you think, Steve? No, and, and that's a great point. And it's also it's a good point to bring up because it brings up also reminds me of Argentina. You know, Argentina is expected to have a better crop, both corn and soybeans this year. So whatever Brazil might lose, Argentina may pick up. So I think the impact could be minimal just because of what you said. Because if you look at whether it's domestic, well, let's say global stocks of corn and soybeans had a big year this year, big buildup. And so we have a cushion where a year ago we didn't have that cushion. So the impact on the market will be small in my mind, but it, it does, until we get there, you, you probably will see a little bit of volatility around the markets to give you opportunities. But having said that, as you see a crop that doesn't get, will focus on Brazil, doesn't get out on time, the safrina crop gets harvested, then that opens up the window for us for exports a little bit longer than it did here in the past year. 
I think as well right now in these markets, there's still plenty of carry in corn and soybeans in particular. And that's something that farmers need to be aware of, I would think, right? Absolutely. And this is, I was just reading something this morning. This is more focused on elevators uh, or responding, (coughs) excuse me, responding elevators. But the market now is in a carry. You know, we, I hate to say this, but there are people who haven't seen a, you know, never dealt with a carry market over the last decade. And so we've got to, you know, kind of the, you know, young folks coming into agriculture have to understand that. And it does provide you some opportunities, particularly on the farmer side, if you have storage to say, all right, I don't like the price that say today at 472 nearby March corn. Um, but I do like, you know, 515 out there in March uh, or yeah, I'm sorry, you know, f- almost $5 as you get out into the next year, you know, let's let's go ahead and sell the deferreds store that corn for there but also make sure that you do do that execution and, and sell that deferred other than to say oh i'm just going to store it because we're going to get there that's not the way you play that but understand what your costs are realize the big thing that's different this year and why we do have some more carries because you have higher interest rates so understand what your interest rate uh, cost is there as well because that will dictate to you whether you carry that corn or soybeans or wheat or whether you sell it now and take that you know and no, don't forget the opportunity cost of that cash all right good thoughts we'll be back with more with steve nicholson from Bank on the way right after this make sure to subscribe to the market talk youtube channel you can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country find bonus content and much more it's easy just go to youtube.com slash at market talk egg and hit the subscribe button or you can search for market talk egg on youtube the market news and analysis you need here on market talk now back to jesse allen We are joined today by Steve Nicholson from Bank here on the program, uh, taking a, a broad look at these markets as we uh, roll the calendar into 2024. Steve, I know uh, Bank. I just recently saw uh, some notes uh, as you guys looked at some of the margins and looking yep. at different things for farmers moving into 2024. I want to talk about that a little bit. In in your view and in Bank's view, what's going to have maybe a better margin opportunity here for farmers in the yeah. U.S.? Are we going to see, you know, corn, soybeans? What's going to have the better margin as we move into next year? Yeah, I think there's when we look at this and we've looked at this a lot of different ways, you know, across looking ahead to 24 soybeans come up as sort of the, is the winner here. So let's you know put that out there right up front. And, but soybeans, we also have to say is soybean margins will be you know, squeezed next year. They're just going to continue to be positive. We are very concerned about the corn margins as we look into 24. So these are fully loaded costs um, that corn margins could be at best break even, uh, but more likely you could see some negative margins. And so as a grower, um, you know, that's something you have to be aware of. And, and one of the things I've kind of noodled around in my brain, and let me make an analogy for a minute from a risk perspective, you know, farmers are in that mode right now of, of locking in inputs for next year's seed. And, and, you know, we'll get probably if they haven't, if they haven't negotiated land rents, they probably have done that. We'll be doing that shortly. Uh, fertilizer, chemistry, all those sorts of things. And it's, it's something to think about is just, I want to challenge people to think about, you're making all these decisions on cost. And so you're getting that cost locked in, which is a good, which is a good thing. Get that cost in, understand what it is but you're hanging out here and have not sold anything against it. You have no revenue, nothing to offset that cost. And you're, and it's, it's a big risk to hang out there for, you know, upwards of 12, maybe 18 months 
and not cover that risk. You know, on the on the kind of the flip side is think about what your buyer on the other side is doing on an elevator. You know, as soon as he he or she buys that grain from you, they're out and they're hedging it immediately because they know they don't want to they want to lock in that margin they have. So I would I would sort of I would challenge producers to think about that, about locking some of that margin in now and not worrying about is the market going up or down. As long as you can lock margin, then you, you know, you you're going to get up to bat again or be, you know, be in the position to plant another crop next year, you know, 25. I've had this conversation with a few folks as well here uh, as oh, of good. late. And I, I agree with you that uh, I feel like those soybean margins are going to be better here next yeah. year. Uh, yep. They just, it just looks at that. You look at the expansion to soybean crush and things like that. And it just feels that way. Yeah. But I know too, and we know this, a lot of farmers in the I States and throughout the Midwest, yeah. I mean, they love to plant their normal rotation. They love to plant corn. They, you yep. know, they love to plant soybeans. Uh, they don't vary from that too much. So I wonder if if soybean margins are better and we look at the acreage outlook for 24, yeah. I mean, where do we pick up more soybean acres? I would have to think that maybe wheat and some of the other fringe acres is probably what goes away for more soybeans potentially, Steve. Yeah, and we it's and it's a point where we're still we're you know our preliminary numbers on on acreage for next year so corn acres coming down and soybean acres coming up. Don't see soybean acres eclipsing corn, so we're still nine is it 91-ish on corn acres, beet acres around that 88, 89 million acre area. So, you know, what you would expect when you think look at the margin side. But you're right, the I states, you know, they're locked into whether it's a continuous corn rotation or corn soybean rotation. And so some of those fringe areas, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but those that are you know, trans, you know, tangential to the to the I states and, and southern Minnesota you know, are, are where the where those acres can move very quickly. Also keep in mind when you, and you mentioned it, is this increase in crushing capacity in, you know, would say, you know, bits and pieces across the heart of the Corn Belt, but that Western Corn Belt is where you see the most expansion because that's where the cheapest bean basis has been historically. So those producers in those areas are gonna see opportunities as, as those buyers come to the marketplace and say, I'm, I'm gonna offer you some beans and I'm going to offer you prices that you've never seen before, which is going to be likely to be, could be, you know, you get 15, 25 cents a bushel higher on that basis for beans. So I think as you look around the edges of the corn belt, that's where you'll see the acres move. And to your point on corn, I mean, we did, we have had some conversation with, with seed manufacturers and seed sellers, and, and they've seen just in the recent last couple of weeks, you know, really a pickup in their corn sales above last year's sales and you're and we're kind of left you're a little bit left scratching your head thinking well where is that coming from and i think part of it is folks moving into new territories and so they get a little pickup in corn but at the same time you know we had a good fall i think there was a lot of field work done this fall and hydrus applied so those people are getting those those numbers locked in right now but like you said they like to plant corn and it, it's a high risk crop but it's a high return crop because the yield potential is so great there if you get the weather to cooperate with you Steve, I know, too, in front of us, I want to bring this up. Uh, we're going to flip that calendar to 2024, yeah. and pretty immediately we're going to have a <laughs> WASDE report. That January yeah. report's always very, very big. Uh, your thoughts as we as we head into that report, and it, it's hard to guess. You know, out We can't yeah. outguess USDA. <laughs> no, we can't. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it always feels like that report 
even if we have a sense of what we could see, there's always surprises with that report, Steve. No, that's right. That's a, that's always one of my big four kind of report days of the year because you get so much. You get you get the WASD, you get the, the annual crop numbers, you get small grains or wheat acres, and you also get grain stocks. So you get all this, you get a you know, you get a huge data dump that day. So I think the couple of things I'm watching, certainly watching winter wheat acres, what the winter wheat acres really come out as. What are we seeing? Did we see a pullback in wheat acres? And you look at prices and think, probably we'll see. And the fact you think about the Southern Plains, how dry it's been, um, that could see a pullback in wheat acres there. Um, the other thing, of course, is watching that corn and soybean yields. We had a pretty big uptick in corn yields in November. Uh, do we get another uptick in corn, corn yield here in January? That's, I think, the question we have on our mind. I'm a little bit skeptical of that, but, you know, we'll see what USDA comes up with. The other piece is the bean numbers. You know, bean yields continue to be a little bit suspect across the board. Um, I think people had, again, kind of like corn, people had good yields in, in 23, but they weren't great or outstanding yields. And so those are the other things I'm seeing. Also wondering about, you know, we have seen an uptick both in corn exports and soybean exports here. Um, a little bit. We've seen some buying activity also on wheat. Does USDA adjust, adjust those export numbers, which they did a little bit in December? Uh, do we see another adjustment there, which could tight, certainly tighten up the bean S&D a little bit more? Um, and then do we see a corn S&D tighten up a little bit as well, or the corn S&D tighten up a little bit as well? Well, as we kind of put a bow on our conversation here today, Steve, uh, kind of circling back to something yeah. you, you brought up earlier in terms of risk management and, and being yeah. on our toes here, I feel like between now and the January WASD report is a real good time for folks to put some pencil or pen to paper and, and have a plan, uh, at least some sort of a plan heading into 2024, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think farmers have been rewarded for waiting the last three years. And, and I think that would be kind of a, that may be a tough or a, not the right strategy as we go into 24. Uh, not that we're seeing, I don't know that the downside, we've had quite a down draft in prices in 23. I think the downside is limited here, but at the same time, I think the upside is limited. And as you very well mentioned earlier, you've had this buildup, particularly globally of, of, and, and domestically of corn stocks and globally of uptick in, in soybean stocks. So the upside is going to be limited there because the markets going go, well, why should I bid up this? I don't need to ration any supply or ration any demand here because we have plenty of stocks in the world. It may not be in the right location, but we'll deal with that. So this is a perfect time for producers as we get through the Christmas holiday. Sit, you know, take a little time, take a little breath, understand where you are on the input side and think about what is it you want? What are your goals? What kind of margins do you want to achieve? And then what is it the market can, what does the market need to give you to achieve those goals? And put those put those places in order. It doesn't say you have to sell, you know, you know, sell the farm, but start that process and get get some orders in place and start to build that foundation of, of profitable margins for 24. Uh, it's it's a matter of just putting putting paper to pencil and, and working that through. I think that is a great spot for us to wrap up our conversation here today. And I know you guys have a lot of great research uh, available through Bank that folks can check out online and much yep. more. And we do uh, appreciate uh, the time and the conversation as always, Steve. Thanks so much. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you and yours. And we will talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks, Jesse. Great to talk to you. And yes, Merry Christmas to you and your family and all our listeners and a Happy New Year.
Really do appreciate it. Once again, Steve Nicholson with Bank joining us here today on Market Talk as we take a look at the markets and the ag economy and more heading to 2024. Coming up next, we're going to discuss farmland values and more as we wrap up the year and look ahead to next year. In front of us, Randy Dickhoot with Agricultural Economic Insights, AEI. He joins us for a conversation about that coming up here after the break. Back with more Market Talk of the Way right after this. Your local FS is member-owned, and that means when you buy our flagship brands like FS Envision and FS High Soy, you're actually buying seed from yourself. And you wouldn't sell yourself anything but the best, would you? In field after field, FS brands are out-yielding the competition. Talk to your local FS crop specialist about Envision corn or High Soy soybean seed today. At harvest, you'll be glad you did. Envision and High Soy are available exclusively at your local FS member company. market information that matters to you on market talk now back to jesse allen and joining us now here on the program we want to have a conversation about farmland values here as we wrap up 2023 and move into 2024 also want to maybe get into some of the trends in farmland ownership and more joining us for a conversation he is with agricultural economic insights Randy Dickhood is with us. Randy, good to uh, talk with you, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and yours, and a Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us here on the program. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thank you, Jesse, and hope you are too. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I appreciate the time. So let's just start and kind of take a broad brush here and, and look at where farmland values stand as we wrap up 2023 and enter 2024. I know you know, all year long, I feel like I've heard the stories about these record land sales in parts of the Midwest, et cetera, et cetera. So as you look at things, where do we stand right now in terms of farmland values? Well, I think 2023 ended up surprising uh, quite a few people and the fact that the land market and the land prices were stronger than once was thought kind of first of the year or so due to the negative factors like higher interest rates coming, uh, raising borrowing costs, uh, high input costs, lowering the potential, you know, estimated or projected profits for farmers uh, in the grain belt. And so all those factors together and the uncertainty thought it might be a little softer and maybe, um, you know, decline a little bit even. But in reality, it kind of settled out. It got fairly quiet early in the year and then later in the year the bidding was pretty aggressive and I think everyone probably underestimated how much liquidity or cash reserves that uh, some farmers had from the profitable you know past few years and when a good farm comes up for sale uh, farmers um, go bid for it because it doesn't come uh, up for sale very often and mm -hmm. so at the end of the year I think uh, Auction prices were pretty strong. There were some no sales, you know, so the quality of the land wasn't as good. But um, yeah, I think uh, the year ended up pretty strong and see where next year goes. Well, in terms of, I think you mentioned this, a lot of farmers having plenty of cash reserves after good years of uh, commodity prices and more. And so, yeah, um, your thoughts on that? It's kind of interesting to see a lot of farmers, you know, investing in some of those capital investments such as adding land to their operation and more did that uh, was that something that surprised you or not here throughout the year randy 
I think it was a little stronger. Uh, like I said, the earlier part of the year did quiet down. There weren't as many sales, mm-hmm. and and seems like things were just kind of stabilizing or plateauing. And and that's basically what it did. You know, Iowa State said, you know, um, land valuers are up three point seven percent year over year in Iowa, and you see similar, you know, just small increase year over year. But again, I think uh, you know farmers will burn through that. Uh, you know cash available, uh, whether from purchases, higher input costs, higher living costs and stuff. So, you know, I think that will slow down a little bit as we go um, into 24 and beyond, but it'll sure depend on commodity prices and uh, yields and this lingering drought that we may or may not have. That's a great point. That's a great point. I, I know in terms of interest rates, too, there's obviously a lot of concern about that uh, across the country and in rural America as well. Um, and I know the Fed, there's this talk about rates starting to seeing rate cuts or easing, you know, trying to get this soft landing as we get into 2024. Do you envision that this interest rate environment could still be a, a major headwind for some farmers in terms of purchasing land as we move into next year? Well, when it takes uh, upwards of $3 million to buy a quarter section of, you know, prime yeah. uh, cropland in, in the uh, heart of the Midwest, there's only so many $3 million lying around <laughs> in the neighborhood. So I think, you know, there'll be more borrowing uh, as, as land purchases go along and land sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but a good thing is, and, you know, I think what's muted the effect so far on a lot of producers, you know, they locked in long-term rates at very low end, you know, uh, levels for their fixed rates and longer term loans, which really helps that cash flow, you know, in comparison to what might be today. And then I think farmers always been probably a little more optimistic. Those interest rates wouldn't last hot and as long and as high as they were kind of being talked about you know, months ago, and seems like that may be what's coming about. And so they may weather it out and, uh, you know, looking for the rates to drop off some this year. Okay. Randy, let's talk about the trend in ownership here of farmland. I know we've obviously had plenty of news headlines here in 2023 about foreign investment in farmland here in the U.S. and things like that. And wondering, you know, I see the urban sprawl in many parts of the country as well, wondering if developers are buying up good quality farmland for that. What is the trend? Is it mainly farmers, you know, bidding against farmers for a lot of this high quality ground still? Or are we seeing some of those other outside, you know, influences coming into this farmland market? That's a good point. And I think it's something that is kind of changing gradually. Uh, of course, we know that uh, aging of landowners, aging of the general population, the aging of farmers is going to kick in and uh, more over the uh, coming couple decades. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, the baby boom age of farmers are in that prime retirement age, give or take some years and when they retire. So that'll create some change in whether they have a farming heir or neighbor they want to turn it all over to or not, or else they'll, uh, you know, rent it out. And so those things will play out. I think, uh, what we're seeing, you know, farmers typically buy 60 to 80% of what comes up for sale in a in an area. And uh, depending on the state laws and regulations, uh, then you have local investors, you know, 
uh, in the area that want to buy and add to their farm portfolio that they've inherited or purchased themselves. And then you have outside investors, individuals, and then you have your institutional, you know, pension funds and so forth. And we've got new uh, entrants into that institutional or, or capital fund uh, buyers uh, that are pooling, um, you know, uh, stakes or interest or shares or uh, uh, fractional interest in farmland to multiple people in purchasing farms. So that's not uh, a large amount of the purchases, but it's a few that are taken off the market and a few less that farmers have a chance to bid on openly. So mm-hmm. combine it all together. I think there's a little little more emphasis on uh, you know that institutional and investor buyer but there's still a smaller part of it and farmers you know when they can buy buy those good farms that come up for sale you mentioned uh renting of ground and i know that's a big piece of our puzzle as well any notes on just uh, cash rental rates and things like that that we're watching as we move into next year i think you know conventional wisdom would say you know costs or um inputs are you know backed off some um after 2023 when they were really really high so mm-hmm. that's going to help some but these lower commodity prices but boy that big wild card is like i said you know was this drought going to linger or will that be into next growing season or not you know we're a long ways off we've got what's going on in south america we've got uh, you know geopolitical events around the world so these commodity prices may or may not stay down where they are uh, and those individual farmers and their Yields on their operations may or may not be affected. And so a lot of wild cards to tell. But I think as far as the cash rent market, um, there's still farmers, you know, bidding pretty aggressively for land. Uh, also, cash rents, you know, a little slower to go up and they're a little slower to come down. So I think once they get to a level, they're, they're kind of sticky there unless there's a change going on uh, and stuff. So, you know, mm-hmm. farmers want to control those acres and don't like to give them up. So uh, they may bank on uh, a tough year and getting through that to look to something that's better. Randy, uh, I'm kind of crystal balling here just a little bit before we wrap up. But obviously, you know, we, we see the the trends in, in farmland prices and it always feels like Iowa, Illinois continue to be kind of the leaders in, in the farmland market. But but some other states have kind of shown some record land sales here this uh, this past year as well. Like I think North Dakota, you know, Missouri, s- some other states that are, are kind of outside the the I state, so to speak. Do you do you anticipate we could see more, you know, record type land sales in some of the, I don't want to say fringe states to the Corn Belt, but I don't know how else to explain it, Randy. What do you think? <laughs> the uh, non traditionally looked at as the uh, heart of the Corn Belt states, yeah. we'll say we'll put it that way. Long yeah. long explanation. You're exactly right. You know what happens, especially the northern plains there, uh, as as the growing season expanded, their crop choices have expanded, new genetics and corn and soybeans have allowed you know, uh, farmers in those northern states raise more um, profitable crops than, than they have in the past. So that you know, flows down to the value of that land. And you take Missouri, for instance, you get some of the areas that are really productive there that can compete with, with good yields. Um, and that gets, um, you know, factored into that value of the land. And then there's that competition. Again, there's only so much land that comes up for sale 
in those good farms and uh, farmers know those uh, in the neighborhood. And so they're going to bid for those because in the long run, um, that'll pay them off the most and uh, be most profitable and pass on down to to the next generation of that farm operation that they can be proud of. So I definitely think, you know, uh, some of those are catching up in Nebraska and, you know, other Indiana's had huge jumps uh, recently, Ohio, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to value that production and, uh, and the genetics and so forth have allowed better yields to be produced on even soils that we once thought were not quite as good. So a lot of technical practices, farmer, farmer expertise and genetics and ag- agronomic practices are improving yields everywhere, and therefore the, the value of the land. Randy, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jesse. Merry Christmas to you. All right. Up next, we'll talk with Rachel Molle from Operation Lifesaver here on Market Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the Market Talk YouTube channel. You can watch our latest interviews with top market analysts in the country, find bonus content, and much more. It's easy. Just go to youtube.com slash at Market Talk Egg and hit the subscribe button. Or you can search for Market Talk Egg on YouTube. The market news and analysis you need here on Market Talk. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to Market Talk. Here just a week or so ago, I had a conversation on AOA with Rachel Molle, the executive director of Operation Lifesaver, looking at rail safety tips during the winter and more. Let's listen back to that conversation. I want to recap Rail Safety Week 2023. I know we talked about that during Rail Safety Week earlier this fall, and uh, I know we got some different results out from the Rail Safety Week in general. Can you just talk about that new report that OLI has uh, put out here this month? Sure. Well, first, I want to say thank you, because it's thanks to partners like you that our reach across the country has really expanded and continues to expand, getting that rail safety message out, not just during Rail Safety Week, but throughout the year. Really impressive. Uh, Our total print and media newswire stories during Rail Safety Week this year rose 60 percent over last year. And our broadcast news stories mentioning Rail Safety Week rose just under 50%, so 49.8% from last year. So it's really thanks to our partners like you. And we certainly did a show with you then. So thank you, Jesse. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. No, we are happy to help spread that rail safety message uh, with you guys. So definitely happy to help. I I know a lot of efforts on stopping track tragedies uh, during this rail safety week. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, one of the things that we do is we want to prevent, and it's our mission as an organization, we want to prevent death and injuries around trains and tracks. And we want to get that rail safety message out. And as I go around the country meeting and talking to people, find out that people don't think about or they haven't learned how to or where to cross the train tracks. Or they will say, oh, I never see a train here. And we need to let them know that any time is train time. You know, a train can come in either direction at any time. They don't run on schedules. Um, you know, when you are crossing the tracks, you should only cross a designated crossing when it's safe to cross and the gates are up. So getting that word out is really, really important because we are trying to change human behavior or teach people the correct human behavior to do. Well, uh, let's think about some of that correct behavior that we need to do here during the holidays and during the winter months. I know uh, looking at 
different travel plans. Obviously, snow, ice can impact uh, folks' travel as well. But of course, uh, thinking about the winter months, uh, there are plenty of rail safety tips that we want to keep in mind. And I think some of these can definitely be, you know, taken into account year round, but especially during the winter months when, when things can be a little bit hectic uh, on the weather side and adverse, et cetera, et cetera. So give us some uh, winter rail safety tips if you can, Rachel. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, you know, snow and ice conditions. So we always want people to slow down, especially when approaching a railroad crossing. Um, you should always expect to train at any crossing at any time in either direction. So you should look and listen as you approach the railroad crossing. Um, some crossings have lights and or gates and some just have the cross buck there. So it's really important to slow down, stop, look and listen because the snow and the wind can muffle the sound of an oncoming train and visibility could be poor. Um, never try to beat a train. And this is really important year round. You know, don't go around the, the gates if they're down and if the lights are flashing, don't try to uh, get in front of that train to get to the other side. Um, don't ever walk, bike, ski, snowmobile, or play on or near the railroad track. Not only is it dangerous, it is illegal. Train tracks are private property. Um, so we really want people to stay away. If uh, you get stuck on the tracks for any reason whatever vehicle you're in a car or a bus um an agri piece of agricultural equipment or a snowmobile you know the first thing you should do is get out of that vehicle and get away from the track at the cross buck which is the signal um you will find a blue and white sign called the ens sign and there's a, a toll-free number on that call that number and let the dispatcher know the locator identification number which is under that number uh, so they can pinpoint where you are to get a message to the train. Um, but the first thing you want to do is you want to get out of that vehicle and get away from the track. Well, and I think about this, and those are great tips, and it's good reminders because I think sometimes we, we we tend to forget, some folks do anyway, that you know trains can't stop quickly. And I, I know some of the stats you guys share what is it, every three hours someone in the U.S. Uh, is uh, either a person or a vehicle is hit by a train? I, you know, thinking about stopping track, yeah, stopping track tragedies, things like that are staggering to hear, Rachel. Yes, and uh, I think we try to get out in every single state into schools and bus rodeos, uh, 4-H clubs, boys and girls clubs, and state fairs, anywhere we can to get this rail safety message out. And we would love to have your listeners join us as volunteers. We're always looking for partners. Our partners, as I mentioned early on, are how we get the rail safety message out, um, working with our state programs in almost every state in the country. We're in about 47 states. So there is someone close to you who can help you get involved with us. Well, and, and thinking about getting involved as well, as you mentioned, becoming a volunteer, or I know too, you guys have a lot of great online assets available in terms of videos and infographics and many educational type resources. I know folks can find a lot of that stuff on your guys' website as well as learning about becoming a volunteer and much more. They can do all of that online, can't they, Rachel? Yes, and our website is oli.org, and there's a wealth of resource and information on there. So please reach out to us. Check out the webpage, download the materials, and share it. 
and take the rail safety pledge or take the transit pledge if you live in an area where you can take train going. Rachel, great thoughts as always. A good reminder here during the uh, holiday season. Before we let you go, anything final you want to share or reiterate just as we think about overall rail safety here, not only during the holidays and the winter months, but at any time of year, uh, what would you uh, say to folks to add and kind of wrap it up here today? If you see tracks, think train. Great conversation I had here just a few weeks ago with Rachel Male from Operation Lifesaver. We're out of time on Market Talk today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a great rest of your day. Your local FS is member-owned, and that means when you buy our flagship brands like FS Envision and FS High Soy, you're actually buying seed from yourself. And you wouldn't sell yourself anything but the best, would you? In field after field, FS brands are out yielding the competition. Talk to your local FS crop specialist about Envision corn or high soy soybean seed today. At harvest, you'll be glad you did. Envision and high soy are available exclusively at your local FS member company.